Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let us pause for just a moment of prayer. Our fathers, we look now at the message you wrote to the little church that was in the city of Smyrna. Help us to relate our lives as individuals and as a church to that which you spoke to these people. And may we be blessed and filled with the Spirit as a result. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there are seven churches in Asia Minor. We spoke last week of Ephesus as being perhaps the greatest city in all of Asia Minor. If Ephesus was the greatest city, then Smyrna was the most beautiful. It was called the Flower of Asia. Very beautiful. It was a laid-out city, a planned city. There aren't many planned cities. Most cities just spring up, and roads are put wherever somebody decides to build some houses. But there was a planner for the city of Smyrna. It became a very beautiful city, but the beauty of it was on a hill called uh, Pagos, P-A-G-O-S. It was the hill full of pagan temples. From one end of that hill to the other, overlooking the city down below, there were temples to various gods and goddesses. And running the length of that hill, from one temple that sat at the end of the street to a temple that sat at the opposite end of the street, on the other end of the hill was a street paved with gold. It absolutely was beautiful. The churches, if I can use the term, the churches that lined the street testified of people who believed in God. But what God was the problem? I live on a hill in Dunbar. We can look out our front window or we can look out our back window and see all the lights of the city of Dunbar in South Charleston, an absolutely beautiful sight any season of the year, and particularly at Christmas. And our grandchildren love to come and go into my study and stand there and just look out over the town. Beautiful sight. It's in all those magnificent lights. But the thing that impresses me is as I leave my house to drive to work or to come to church, I am impressed with the number of steeples that I can see sticking up all over town. There's a church here and there and yonder. All over Dunbar and all over all I can see of uh, Spring Hill area of South Charleston. There's a steeple sticking up. The Methodist Church, uh, an independent gospel church, a Baptist church, 
a couple of Baptist churches that I can see, and others that, that are standing there as testimony. And the thing that runs through my mind, all these steeples rise into the air to proclaim that there are people in town who believe and serve God, when the most of the people in that city and any other city really do not worship the God represented by the tower that is sticking in the air. Most of them worship no God. Hopefully, many people in those cities worship the God that we serve. This town was the birthplace of the great poet Homer. The city was well known for its great music, its orchestras and choirs. It was known for its theater and for its art galleries and for its great sport arenas. The Super Bowl would have been played in Smyrna. You won't find it there in two weeks. It's somewhere out west, I think. But Smyrna would have been a host for such an event. People would have come there to enjoy all the marvelous things of life, but it was dominated by pagan temples. People worshiping idols. Not a god that was alive, but gods that were dead. Dionysius was one of those gods. He was the god of wine. And he represents well this town in that whenever there is a people of effluence, you will find people who have turned to, to alcoholic drink. And I don't preach about alcohol, and I don't intend to tonight, and say very few things about it. I think there are a few things that are somewhat pointless to talk about too much in church, and this is one of them. But nevertheless, it represents a, a, an affluent society in which people do not seem to want to worship God, Jehovah, the creator of the world, a life God, that will worship some pagan idol and maybe even make alcohol the God of their life. And that's what these people were doing. In this early history of the church, you will remember from, from your study in high school and even in grade school, that the church was persecuted during Nero's time, but even more so in Diocletian's time as the emperor of Rome. The Christian people were persecuted. They were uh, turned into arenas and allowed hungry lions to be turned in, uh, into them. Many of them were put on crosses and crucified, similar to Christ. Many of them were covered with tar and put on the cross and set on fire that they might light the arena and the courtyards of, of the government. Many of them were boiled in oil. Some of them were burned at the stake. Historians tell us that there were over five million Christian people in this little era of time that were put to death at the hands of the Roman government for their belief in Jesus Christ. It was the pastor of the church at Smyrna that became a very well-known uh, martyr for the cause of Christ. His name was Polycarp. Let me tell you about Polycarp. This is history. You won't find him in the Bible, but this is history. Polycarp was the pastor of the church. The order of the Roman government was that once a year, you had to do the same thing that Daniel was required to do back in the Old Testament, and that is to pause and proclaim that Caesar was God. 
Just go down on your knees once a year, wherever you are, and say the words, Caesar is Lord. And you could worship however you wanted to the rest of the year. Seemed like a simple request, but Polycarp refused to bow the knee and proclaim Caesar as Lord. And so the soldiers came to his house and arrested him. They did not want to arrest this famous man, this man of God who had preached marvelous sermons and even shook them in their faith in believing in their pagan gods. But they had to, for he had disobeyed the law. He asked for one hour. He said, allow me one hour to pray. And they agreed, and he went to his room. Now, but before he went to his room, he turned to his family, and he said, feed and give these people drink while I'm praying. And so they sat down in his house and ate his food and drank his drink while he prayed. And after an hour was up, he came out of his room and surrendered himself to the soldiers, and they took him off to trial. And as they went down the streets of Smyrna, the captain of the guard pleaded with Polycarp, what harm will it do, he said, to bow your knee and say, Caesar is Lord, and we won't have to arrest him, you can go back home. And Polycarp had these words recorded that are recorded in history. Let me read them to you exactly. He said this, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He would not bow the knee and just for one fleeting moment proclaim that Caesar was Lord. They took him to the stake with the word around him to burn him alive. They prepared to tie his hands behind him around that stake and he asked that he might stand untied in the fire. And these were his words. He said, leave me as I am, for he who gave me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flame unmoved. And Polycarp stood in the fire in front of the stake, unshackled, and died as a testimony of his faith. That's history. And it was to this church that he pastored that the Lord said to John, write them a letter and say to them, I know your works and I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. But he began the letter by saying, he that speaks to you was dead and is alive. He is the first and he will be the last. He is dead and is alive. That properly translated in our language today would be translated this way. The one who came to life again is speaking to you. This is a unique characteristic of Christianity that no other religion in the world can claim. We serve a risen Savior. 
He turned the world today. He walks with me and talks with me a long, nice, narrow way. He lives. He lives. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. This the Buddhists can't say. This Confucius can't say. Mohammeds can't say it. No religion in this world can lay claim to a living God except Christians. He is alive who speaks to you and he commends them. He commends them for their work. You won't find a condemnation in this letter. He commends them for their work. He commends them for the persecution, and he commends them for the poverty. No condemnation to the church at Smyrna. Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he could not condemn this church, for they were in Christ Jesus. There will be no condemnation upon this church if we're in Christ Jesus. But we will be condemned. We're out of Christ. He says, I know your affliction. Your tribulation is the word he uses. It means affliction. The Greek that is used here gives the inference of that of one being crushed beneath a heavy load. One being crushed beneath a heavy load. Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. But I want you to notice the emphasis on the word falsely. Brethren, we are not blessed if we are persecuted rightly. We're only blessed of God if we're persecuted falsely. If you're guilty, you will not receive a blessing from God. It's only if you're innocent of the charges that are made against you. Sometimes we feel that we are crushed under a load, like the church at Smyrna. But we must be careful that we are capable of receiving the commendation of the Lord and not his condemnation because we're guilty or we're innocent. But he says, I also observe your poverty. The Greek is pochia, P-T-O-C-H-E-A. You won't remember that word and I won't either. But it means complete destitution. He's saying, I know how absolutely destitute you are as far as physical things are concerned. If you lived in the city of Smyrna and you were a Christian, you could not get a job. They had unions even back then. They called them guilds. And you had to have a card 
to get a job. One of the questions they asked you when you applied for membership in that union was, are you a Christian? And if you said, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, I follow the risen Savior, they would say, you cannot work. You can't get a car. You had to deny Jesus Christ to work in the city of Smyrna. Brethren, if you were asked tomorrow morning when you go to work upon penalty of losing your job, To take your stand for or against Jesus Christ, what would you do? <clears throat> this church was commended for their being willing to stand in the midst of her absolute poverty. They had no jobs. They could not earn a living. And if you were privately employed and you had a shop down on the street, the people of that city ceased to deal with you and forced you out of business. This was the facts of being a Christian in the city of Smyrna. And the Lord said, I know your complete poverty. Not only did they do that, but the people of the town would go to the homes of the Christians and ransack them and destroy everything that they had in them. Some of you may have had that experience of someone coming into your home and tearing it absolutely apart. And it But it does happen. But they had this routinely. They had nothing. As far as material wealth was concerned. They had material poverty, but they had spiritual power. The reverse seems to be true in our society today. We have material wealth, but we have spiritual poverty. Let me ask you a question. Don't you answer out loud. I want to know how much you're worth. What's in your checkbook? Uh-oh, I've done going to meddling. What does the bottom line of your financial statement really say? How much are you worth? But I'm not talking about the checkbook that you might pull out of your pocket. That doesn't happen to be one. I don't care. My wife won't let me. She holds the money in our house. All I get spending money, which I'm glad so I don't have to worry about paying the bills. What are you worth? Not this. I'm talking about something that is above. What is your spiritual work? You've heard all of for many, many years. You can't take it with you. Brethren, you can't take it with you. But let me tell you something. You can send it ahead. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures of honor work rust and moth that's corrupt and thieves break through and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for thieves don't break in and steal no you can't take it with you but you can send it ahead and what does your bank account in heaven say 
Are you physically wealthy and spiritually poor? Or do you have great riches laid up in heaven waiting for you to enjoy when you get there, although you may have nothing much in this world? These people were poor, but my, were they so wealthy. Now, got a hurry, don't you? He says, I know those that are of the synagogue of Satan. You see, there were Jews in this town who claimed that they loved God. They believed in God. He said, they don't. They don't. Why don't they believe in God? Unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no belief in God that will do you any good. Now, there are two basic heresies that I want to mention. I'll do it quickly. First of all, it is absolutely necessary that a person believe in the deity of Jesus Christ in order to believe in God. You must believe in his virgin birth, and I've said this before. His death and his physical res resurrection and his coming again, those are absolute necessities to believe. But you will find the multitudes of the people of this world do not believe in the virgin birth of Christ, do not believe in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and do not believe in the physical resurrection of the Lord. You cannot love this God that we're talking about without loving his son and recognizing and accepting that which his son did. Now the other thing that becomes a problem is there is a mixture in our minds as to the difference between grace and works. We are saved by grace. The scripture says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by the grace of God. It's a gift. If you're saved, you were saved because God gave you your salvation. You didn't earn it. But there are those who will teach that unless you do things our way, unless you baptize our way, you can't be saved. Unless you pray our way, you can't be saved. Unless you dress our way, you can't be saved. Unless you speak in some kind of a foreign language that nobody can understand, you can't be saved. And on and on we go with putting restrictions upon how one is saved. One is saved by the grace of God not by what one must do. When the Philippian jailer came rushing into Paul, he said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, after salvation works, then becomes absolute paramount. But notice where I put them. After, after salvation, works become paramount absolutely important and necessary because it is through one's works that he testifies to his salvation. This is where we get so confused so many times. We are saved by the love of God, but because we are saved, we will work for the love of God. 
we have the evidence. The people in Smyrna had the evidence. And they were commended for the life that they were living in that town, which meant that many hundreds of them died by the lions or by the torch in that town. They starved to death. They had not one penny to rub against another, but the Lord said, you're wealthy. How do we stand when it comes to what the Lord says to us? Are we a Smyrna? serve the Lord well and receive his commendation, we ought not even be physically poor because we have plenty, but we ought to certainly be spiritually wealthy and cherish and desire that above everything else that life possibly offers. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.